back in my football playing days, we were getting ready to play the University of Alabama. It was Monday of game week. We were just getting started on the game plan, and I remember it was raining really hard outside. So all of us on the team, we were thinking, maybe we'll get to practice indoors today. And we loved practicing indoors because there was air conditioning and we wouldn't get soaked. So we're all in the team meeting room before practice, and our coach, Jackie Sherrill, walks in to address the team. And he says, I'm sure you're all wondering uh, what we're going to do about the rain. And we all lean forward. And he says, well, we play in the rain. We're going to practice in the rain. And I think he expected that we might like all jump up and, you know, high five each other like, like a Disney movie. <laughs> but we just sunk. Oh, my goodness. It was a terrible feeling. Uh, nobody wanted to go get soaked in practice in the rain. Nobody wanted that kind of adversity, especially on a Monday. Uh, now, we did end up winning that game, though. No, I'm just kidding. Of course we didn't. Uh, y'all, we talked last week about the fact that adversity makes us. Adversity is what builds us up and strengthens us. We may not like it. We may not ever choose it. But we also rarely grow without it. And especially as we read the letters of the Apostle Paul, in the mind of the Apostle Paul, when he wrote about his own circumstances, he rejoiced in his suffering because he saw that God was using it for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul didn't see suffering as some kind of coincidence. He saw it as one of God's tools to bring about faith. And so now as we close out the first chapter of Philippians, Paul is going to he's going to give us a very strong word on how we're meant to operate in the face of adversity. And uh, before we get to the, the commands of Paul, uh, I think it helps if we understand a little bit of the Philippian context. I've mentioned this in previous weeks, but Philippi was about 800 miles away from Rome. Rome is where Paul was writing from, where he was imprisoned. But Philippi was still a Roman city. The Roman Empire was massive. And the Roman Empire at this time was under the uh, rule of the Emperor Nero. Now, Nero was notoriously uh, hateful toward Christians. Uh, and, and the Philippian church certainly would have felt that. They would have been aware of that. But also on a very practical level, not just a feeling, but very practically, everything the Philippians did publicly was just soaked through with Roman influence. At every public event, the people paid allegiance to Nero. And they spoke of Nero as Lord. That's how the emperor was considered in that time and place. He was Lord. Well, here these Philippian Christians are. They're standing and proclaiming a new allegiance, a very different allegiance. They're saying, Jesus is Lord. And if that wasn't strange all by itself to proclaim someone else's Lord, they're talking about Jesus, the guy that the Romans actually crucified about 30 years earlier. So not only are they being potentially um, 
uh, are they coming out against the authority of Nero, but they're also potentially coming across as crazy that a crucified man from a couple of decades ago is Lord to them? Talk about putting yourself out there. I mean, the Philippians were not just, you know, blending in. There was no way to blend in. And so Paul writes to encourage them and to challenge them because he knows that they are putting themselves out there, that they are experiencing constant stress and they're experiencing suffering because of their faith, because of Christ and their allegiance to him as Lord. There's a challenge and there's an encouragement at the end of Philippians chapter 1, and that's what I want us to take away from this scripture as well. Great challenge and great encouragement as to how we operate as the church in the face of adversity. Uh, so look with me at Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30, right there at the end of the chapter. We'll put the words up here uh, below my head as well for us to walk along with together. Paul says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. So first comes the challenge, and it's a doozy. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only means the same thing now that it did then. Only means all the time, in every circumstance, exclusively, Paul says. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, right here, Paul is actually making a deeper point than what we see on the surface. Uh, on one hand, the Philippians were citizens of Rome, right? And that was a great source of pride for most people. It was a huge deal to be a Roman citizen. But now, they are citizens of in a far greater sense of the term. They are citizens of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. When Paul says, conduct yourselves, he's actually using a political term. What he's saying to them is, uh, live in a way that you are new citizens of a new kingdom. Don't just live in a way that you, you live a nice life that reflects well on you personally, but live as though you are citizens of a new realm, a new kingdom. Later on in chapter 3, Paul says it like this, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think we get a sense of what the, the command is here that's coming from Paul. Live your lives only in a manner that reflects your heavenly citizenship. Live in a way that reflects who you are because Jesus is your Lord, not Nero, not anyone else. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, your manner of life should reflect it. You don't get to blend in. 
You don't get to think and act like everybody else, and you shouldn't want to. Jesus is Lord, and so live in a manner worthy of his good news, of his gospel and his grace. Now, I want to make a careful distinction here. What Paul is not saying, he's not saying live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Live such a good life that you become worthy of God. Now, that's actually the opposite of the gospel. That's the opposite of the good news. The good news is that in spite of our unworthiness, God sent his son to die on the cross to make the unrighteous righteous. He died on our behalf to bring us to God. We bring nothing to the table. We, we can't be worthy of that. Okay? The command is, having received the grace of Jesus, having been forgiven and set free from sin and death, now live in response to that. So we're, living, we're not living to earn and deserve something. We're living in response to something. Live in a way that is fitting of one who has been reconciled to God and set free from sin. That's the command. Now, there's a personal component to this, and there's also a congregational component. Paul really focuses more on the congregation, the whole church in this scripture. But I want to just, let me just give a quick word uh, for us as individuals here. When Paul says, live in a manner worthy of the gospel, he's not saying just be a nice person. He's saying live a life that puts the gospel of Jesus on display. Jesus, in all his grace and love and mercy and purity and justice and righteousness, live a life that shines a spotlight on him. Uh, or we could think about it like this. My goal in life should not be for people to have a high opinion of me. My goal should be that people would have a high opinion of Jesus because of me. And we see the difference. Live your life for Christ so that no one would ever make the mistake of thinking it was about me, about you. No, we're shining the light on him. We're living a life worthy of him. Now, there are about a million practical takeaways of what a worthy life looks like. Uh, let me just give one and it may seem like a random one, but I think it's appropriate, especially in the time uh, that we're living in presently. I realize that you are watching this sermon right now on the internet. I don't know that there's any other way to access it. You're on the internet. So am I. I'm recording right now uh, on Wi-Fi. We're on the internet, okay? So here's a question I think is very appropriate. Uh, am I using the internet in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Maybe that's not something we ever consider, but we should, especially right now as most of us are spending a good bit of time on our phones or our computers or our tablets. Am I living in a manner worthy of the gospel and how I uh, access the internet, the sites I visit, the things I look at, and also the things I post? Now, y'all, we're seeing this more and more. Uh, people posting and sharing things on Facebook usually political in nature, that are full of slander and name-calling and profanity and conspiracy and divisiveness. Now, it's good and right uh, for us to exercise our political voice in appropriate ways. That's a good thing. That's democracy. 
That's a blessing. But it's wrong to slander. It's wrong to demean and to create division. It's not just morally wrong, but it makes the sweetness of the gospel appear bitter, doesn't it? This, this is why Paul says to the Ephesians, Ephesians 4, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, building up, that it may give grace to those who hear. Uh, Y'all, my words are not just words. My words can communicate grace. My words, your words, can put the gospel on display. And the scripture says that's what they're meant to do. But of course, they can also do the opposite. We need to be very careful about the things we say, the things we post, the things we share, that we are giving off the aroma, the sweetness of the gospel. Because for the most part, our communication is limited to what we're saying and communicating over the internet right now. Is, is my speaking and posting and commenting, is it shining a light on the grace of Jesus, or is it not? Now, that's just one little example. I say it's not little, but it's one of many. Paul says, I want you to run your whole life through that filter. Every single thing about how we live, private and public, we ought to strive to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Now, this is an individual pursuit, of course, but I want us to pan out a little bit to see more fully what Paul is actually getting at, because it's not just individual. He's got the whole church in mind here. So look with me again at verses 27 and 28. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too, from God. So this is more than just an appeal for our own personal holiness. Paul is appealing to the whole church to live in a certain way, in a world of adversity, this little Christian church in Philippi, they are proclaiming Jesus as Lord, not Nero, smack dab in the middle of the Roman Empire. Should it surprise us that they have opponents? That's the word Paul uses. No, naturally, of course. They have opponents. They have people who are actively against them, shaming them, persecuting them. Therefore, Paul gives four commands that give shape to the Philippian response. How should we live in light of our circumstances? Uh, we've already seen one of the commands. He says, walk worthy of the gospel. But we see the, the other three in, in the scripture we just read. Second command, he says, stand firm in one spirit. Meaning, hold tightly the confession of your faith together. The Spirit of God gives the church unity and strength to stand together in faith as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a big emphasis for Paul. It's a big emphasis in the book of Hebrews. When the pressure is applied, don't 
uh, deny Christ, but stand firm in Christ as your hope. Stand firm together, Paul says, in one spirit. And then we see the third command. He says, with unity of mind or soul, strive together for the faith of the gospel. So standing is kind of a position of defense. Striving is more of an offense kind of position, right? We're moving to the goal line here. He says, strive together for the faith of the gospel. That means you lock arms together as the church and continue to share Jesus with your city, with your neighbors, even with your opponents. Lock arms and continue to live out this countercultural good news together. Don't back down. Strive together for the faith. Continue to open your mouth and speak of Jesus with all boldness. And then lastly, Paul says, don't be alarmed by your opponents. Uh, when Paul says, don't be alarmed, the, the language, as he writes it in Greek, it's uh, when horses are startled and begin to stampede. That's what that word alarm means. Paul says, don't be like that. Don't be, when suffering comes, don't be what perhaps is natural for us to be. People who are shocked and overwhelmed and, and panicked. Don't, don't become like horses who hear a gunshot and stampede and cause chaos. No, he says, don't be alarmed by your opponents. What happens when Christians are, rather than being terrified with opposition, they're bold and faithful in the face of adversity? What happens? Paul says, you give forth a sign a sign of destruction for your enemies. Meaning, when you're bold in the face of opposition, you show your enemies that there's really nothing they can do to you. Their intimidation and fear have no hold on you. They think they, that by threatening your comfort and your safety and your possessions, that they can destroy your faith. They think you're just like them that your faith is rooted right here in the temporary things of this world, and if they threaten the things, then you will let go of your faith. But no, your hope is not rooted in this world. And so when you show confidence in Christ, you're actually revealing their hopelessness, not yours. You have hope, a hope that is not rooted in the here and now. They're the ones who are truly hopeless, and your confidence is puts that on display. It's their destruction that you're giving signal to, not your own. And he says your confidence in the Lord is also a sign of your own salvation, which comes from God. Y'all, Paul's hope for the church is, even as they suffer, that they will signal to the world that they belong to Jesus, that they trust Jesus. He is Lord. And you can take everything else away from us, no matter. We have Christ, and Christ is more than sufficient. He is our hope, and he is our glory. Y'all, this is a reflection of what Paul said about himself back in Philippians 1.20, that he will be vindicated. I know I will be vindicated, Paul says, because I will exalt Jesus with all boldness, whether in life or in death. Now he prays and commands that for the church at large. Stand firm in your faith. Strive together 
for the gospel. Don't be alarmed by persecution because Jesus is being exalted in your life and he will be no matter what. Now, this is the, this is the challenge that Paul sets forth for the church, both the Philippian church 2,000 years ago and still relevant for us as the church today. He says, walk together in a manner worthy of the gospel. Stand firm upon your faith in one spirit. Strive together for the sake of the gospel in your city without succumbing to fear or intimidation. Now that's, that's the bar he sets, and that bar is set awfully high. We can see it, I'm sure. But I, I want to show you guys some of the real fruit of this. Paul is not giving abstract spiritual ideas. He's not barking down orders from on high, things that he himself is not willing to do, but he feels fine with telling others to do it, right? That's always a sign of poor leadership. Something that I'm not willing to do, but I demand that you do it. Now, this is something that Paul knew well, and the Philippians knew well, because they'd seen it for themselves. I want to take us to Acts chapter 16. And I, if, if you've got a Bible with you right now, I'd encourage you to turn there. I certainly would encourage you to read Acts 16 for yourself, because this is how the Philippian church was started. Luke tells us the story. He gives a whole chapter to it, that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, these guys were traveling around, they were sharing the gospel, and then in Acts 16, they come to Philippi. Um, and in the narrative, this is, I'm going to come up to about the middle of the chapter here. Paul and Silas are beaten half to death and thrown into jail. They were not received favorably. Things took an awful turn. Things did not look good for them in Philippi. But I want you to see what happens next. They've been beaten. They've been shamed. They've been thrown into jail. Their feet chained together. Things are looking bad. But look at verse 25, Acts 16, 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, the jailer fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Think about this. The church in Philippi existed because God used faithful people in the midst of adversity 
in the midst of suffering. And here Paul is, 10 years later, writing this letter, the letter to the Philippians. And he's encouraging them to do the same. He's encouraging them to do what they saw in him and in Silas and the rest of those who came to share the gospel in the first place. That it's, it's, it's almost like Paul is saying, y'all, this is what Christians are made for. This is what it means to follow Jesus. The seeds that are planted in the soil of adversity, God will bear up his glorious fruit. It's the way it's always been. It's the way you saw it in me, and it's the way it still is today. The seeds planted in the soil of suffering, God will bear his great fruit, and God will receive all glory. This is the challenge for us as the church. Truly, adversity does not ruin us. It makes us. Adversity does not diminish the cause of Christ, but it strengthens it and fuels it all the more. This is the challenge. And I mentioned earlier that there's challenge and encouragement. So here at the end, I want us to take in Paul's encouragement. Now, word of warning. This is not going to seem very encouraging, perhaps, <laughs> at first glance. And it may take a while for it to, uh, to marinate. But it's meant to be an encouragement. Verses 29 and 30, the very end of Philippians 1. Paul says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, Acts 16, and now here to be in me as a prisoner in Rome. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. Y'all, that word granted, that is the same root word for gift or grace. Paul is saying God has graciously gifted to us two things for Jesus' sake. First, the gift of believing in him. And we have no problem with that one. We agree with that one. The gift of grace for our salvation, yes, of course, that's a gift that we've been granted. But also, Paul says, to suffer for his sake. Now, y'all, I have no problem at all with the first gift, but that second gift to suffer for Christ's sake? How does that even qualify as a gift? How is suffering a gift? But this is, this is one of the more astounding new realities of the Christian life. That to suffer with Jesus is to be united with him. That's what Paul tells us in Philippians. Later on in chapter 3, Paul calls it the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. It's something that he longs for and delights in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. There's union with Christ. And to suffer with Christ means that we are glorified with him. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, which we studied a couple of weeks ago. We have union with Christ. We have glory in and through and with Christ. And this is why Paul affirms that our suffering is a gift from God, not a punishment. Not a coincidence, not blind bad luck. But Paul says when you suffer for Christ, you are experiencing God's grace, God's gift. You have union with Christ, you experience glory with Christ, 
And, and through our suffering, we come to be more like Christ. We're brought into conformity with his image, with his character. So much so that Paul actually celebrates suffering when it comes for the sake of Christ. Not because it's fun. Not because it's enjoyable. There's, it's not a strange, sadistic view of suffering. But he celebrates it because what it produces it glorifies Jesus and it brings us into more fellowship with Christ and it makes the glory of his promises shine all the more brightly in our lives. It's a sign to the world of who we are and how strong our faith really is. And so Paul celebrates it and he encourages the church, you take up these hardships right along with me. See them as a gift because they truly are. Y'all, this is, let's acknowledge it, this is a difficult truth to accept. This is a deep truth that takes time to marinate within our minds and hearts because everything about it seems backward. Everything in us wants to run from suffering, wants to avoid suffering. How are we supposed to stand firm and push forward? How are we supposed to rejoice? That seems crazy to us. But as we close, I, I hope that it's clear, and I, I think Paul goes to great lengths to be clear. In verse 29, he actually says it twice. For Christ's sake, this has been granted to us. To suffer for Christ's sake. He says it twice. To be redundant, it's on purpose he says it twice. It's for Christ's sake. We don't suffer for our own sake. We would never make it. There's not enough in us. There's not enough motivation. There's not enough lasting strength and endurance in us. If it was for our own sake, we wouldn't make it. But for Christ's sake, Jesus who suffered himself for us in order to save us, for Christ's sake, we can suffer. Jesus who suffers with us, he's with us in the valley. He's our intercessor. He's our advocate. All these wonderful truths of how Jesus ministers to us right now. Not just something he did in the past, but he's with us today. And then Jesus who promises to make our suffering glorious, that he will redeem all things and make all things work together for good. There will be no pointless suffering in the end because we are suffering for his sake as his brothers and sisters. There will be glory on the other side of it. Y'all, revisit with me for as we close. This, this scene from chapter 16 of Acts, um, the Philippian jailer. Think about him for a minute. This is a guy who came to faith through the ministry of Paul and Silas. He came to faith and so did his entire family, his whole household. They believed in Jesus and were baptized right there in that chapter. Now, 10 years later, Paul's letter is being read aloud as the Philippian Christians gather for church on a Sunday morning. Somebody, probably Timothy, is reading this letter out loud for them as they sit in church. Now, I can't prove this. I don't know this for a fact, but I think it's a safe assumption. Who is that guy sitting on the front row at First Baptist Philippi as this letter is being read? Sitting there with his family? Don't you imagine it's the Philippian jailer who 10 years later loves and walks with Jesus? and celebrates what God did for him 
at midnight when he was suicidal, thinking he had no reason to live. But in fact, God had planned his very salvation that night to bring him to faith and change him forever. Imagine him sitting on the front row as, as Paul challenges him and the church to be faithful in trial and to stand firm and to live worthy of the gospel in the face of all their suffering. This man who once persecuted the Christians is now himself a Christian and is being encouraged to live it out. Isn't that an awesome thought? It's incredibly likely to me that that's what's going on. Assuming this man hasn't died and gone to heaven at this point, he's right there being encouraged with the rest of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And perhaps, again, I'm using my imagination, forgive me, but perhaps the jailer stands up to share his testimony for the thousandth time, something he loves to share, of how Paul and Silas sang and preached from that prison cell and how their faithful suffering led to his salvation. What a wonderful story that never gets old. Can you imagine it? Is Paul speaking abstract spiritual truths that he's pulling out of the sky? No. This is real life ministry. And the people of Philippi knew it for themselves. Paul says, you live out what you know, what you've seen, and what you yourselves, deep in your hearts, are experiencing. Let it be the animating power that the Holy Spirit brings to you when times are tough. Y'all, Paul goes on to say this. I can't wait to get there. Philippians chapter 3, one of my very favorite scriptures ever. Paul says, I have lost all things for the sake of Christ, suffering. And I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Y'all, for us, think about what Paul just said there. For us, suffering is not loss. It's gain. Suffering is a gift of grace when we suffer for Christ because through our suffering, we get more of him. It's not loss, it's gain, according to Paul. And so my prayer, my hope for you, and certainly for me, because I don't always see it that way, my prayer is that God would give us hearts to receive this truth and together to live in a manner worthy of our Savior who makes it true. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the testimony of Philippians chapter 1. Paul, who affirms his own circumstances, bad as they were. Paul, who affirms the Philippians' circumstances. And they were just as bad. And yet there is boldness and confidence and faith and joy uh, just bursting off of the page. Because Paul speaks of a Savior who has overcome the world. Paul speaks of a Savior who has brought life into us, who has, who has made us alive together with him. And therefore, Lord, we as the church... Uh, may stand firm. We may live worthy. We may strive together for the faith of the gospel, and we may do it with boldness, no matter what the cost, no matter who the opponent may be. 
because Christ is better, Christ is stronger, Christ is more worthy. Jesus is Lord, not Nero, not anyone else. Lord, this is not a false bravado. This is not boldness that we fake and pretend like we're something. This is what the Spirit produces as we have faith in Christ and look to him. And so, Father, would you produce more and more of this faith within us and and together as the church, Lord, would you bind us together that as Paul commands that we might lock arms as those who stand firm and march ahead when times are tough. Lord, I, I pray for us that as we deal with adversity now, in, in unique ways, that our faith is uh, proven, that our faith is strengthened, that, Lord, our resolve becomes more settled as on a solid rock because we have the rock of Jesus to stand upon. And so, Lord, give us, like Paul, give us rejoicing. Give us the, the, the amazing ability to look at even hardships and call them gifts because they are tools for the glory of Jesus Christ um, in your hands. Let our lives be for your glory so that everything, Lord, may be grace to us. Everything, even the things we would never choose. Um, We find Christ there and we glorify him through it. Uh, Lord, give us Give us hearts to see this, to take it in, to live it out. We ask in his wonderful name. Amen.